0: Thanks for joining today on this frigid Minnesota morning, especially if you're new. Thanks for driving in and, or walking in, maybe for some of you uh, in, in the cold. Thanks for, for being here worshiping with us today. Uh, we are in a series right now in the book of 2 Corinthians, which we're finishing this month. So we have four weeks left, I believe, including today. So um, if you have a Bible or phone up, you want to turn there in your Bibles to chapter 12, verses 1 to 10 that's where we will uh, be today. We are nearing the end of the book, so there's um, a lot to say in terms of summary, which I I won't spend a lot of time doing that this morning, because it would take a little little too long. But Paul is uh, the the guy who wrote this letter to a real church in a real city 2,000 years ago named Corinth. Uh, He is continuing to, uh, his words, boast in order to try and win back the Corinthians from the so-called super apostles' false teaching. So uh, if, if that kind of went over your head and you're just joining us, uh, hang, with, hang with me because we'll catch up to speed as we go. Um, but today we're going to look at the theme of uh, paradise, thorns, and grace. Uh, Paul is going to talk, uh, again, kind of like he's bragging or boasting even though he doesn't want to and he's, uh, again, uh, his words, he would call himself a madman and a fool for doing, for doing it, but he is going to... Um, talk as though he is talking about his works and his uh, experiences, maybe his labors and accomplishments, certainly his sufferings and weaknesses, to try to uh, kind of compare and contrast himself with these other false teachers that are infiltrating the church. All right, so have that in your mind as we go forward, and we'll kind of make more sense of this as we, as we get through it. But um, this section, as I said last week, this section of 2 Corinthians is some of the more unique material that we have from Paul actually. So if you are just even just interested in knowing uh, who this Paul guy is, the guy that wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, what his life experiences were like, and uh, the kind of the main gist and content of, of his teaching, you should have a vested interest in knowing what he's doing here because this is really unique stuff. In fact, what he says today in the first few verses, he never says anywhere else in his letters. And there's a reason for that, which we'll come back to in unpack in just a couple of minutes but let's start by reading verses uh, 1 through 10 today again we're in chapter 12 Want to follow along on screen or in your Bibles in front of you that would that would be great so here we go verse 1 I must go on boasting though there's nothing to be gained by it I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body I do not know God knows So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so t- today's passage kind of um, outlines itself pretty neatly into this third heaven idea, which we'll talk about first and what we learned from that. But then it's obviously all related. So he kind of goes into this um, idea of what he, what he learned, so what Christ taught him through the revelations, but especially through this a thorn, he says. This thorn in the flesh that he gets to keep him from being conceited about the, the revelations. So we'll, we'll get to that and spend a little bit more of our time, at least emphasis-wise, on, on that. Well, let's start with the third heaven or paradise. So it's kind of uh, synonymous uh, terms or ideas here. Some just initial comments on this. First, just for clarity, the man that Paul knew who had these visions and who was tempor- temporarily caught up to the third heaven and paradise is Paul himself so at first when you're reading you might wonder who this other guy is Paul says I know this guy who has experience and, and blah 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 but if, but he comes back in verse 7 by saying that he's linking himself with the revelation revelations and visions and how God humbled himself uh, humbled him so he wouldn't get conceited about those same visions Because very few other Christians had gotten this type of insight into heaven from God. That might go without saying, but this is actually not commonplace. This was quite rare. And so Paul is saying uh, that he received this thorn to keep him um, grounded, essentially. He's probably talking in this other man language uh, to start in the first couple of verses because he's trying to distance himself from it and not centralize it or boast in it. I'll, I'll get back to that idea. That's actually pretty important. I'll come back to that in, in just a minute. But the second question might be, what is the third heaven at all? And the answer to that is third means it's the third one past the first heaven of the atmosphere, the sky, the second heaven of space into the third heaven that is synonymous with paradise and what we normally think about when we think about heaven, like where God is. Uh, dwells in, in the, the, the sky, so to speak. So we don't really know what happened there. Even uh, Paul, it's kind of funny because he says, I don't really know what happened either, like in terms of whether I dreamed it or whether it was in the body. Uh, God knows, but I don't, I don't really know that. But we do know at least that God, for some reason, allowed him to peek behind the curtains of heaven like some of, of the prophets of old, right? Like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, if you know some of their uh, stories in the Old Testament, but also maybe like John, who wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of, of the Bible, based on an experience and a vision like this. And so the difference would just be that Paul wasn't asked to write down what he saw, where John was asked to write it all down. And so that, that, that's where the book of Revelation um, came from. But at least understand, this experience wasn't unprecedented then, but it was quite rare. And so again, that's why he's, Um, Why it might sound kind of odd, it should sound odd if you've read others of Paul's letters, why it sounds a bit enigmatic and cryptic and heavenly, um, but also why Paul brings it up at all to make this argument that he's, uh, which I'll get to here in a second, about um, how it's not central uh, to the faith at the same time. Before we talk more about it though, um, I just wanted to, it's kind of an aside, I wanted to mention that I love that passages like this exist in the Bible, even though they might be kind of frustrating where you read them and think, I, I have no idea what that means or why that's there. Even Paul doesn't seem to know what exactly happened uh, when God caused him to experience that heavenly vision. But I like that passages like this exist because, um, well, for a couple of reasons. One, they humble us because it's not always clear. It's hard to understand why things are in the Bible sometimes. That's good to keep us kind of grounded in that place. But... They also remind us there's more to reality than what we can see, and in this case, they remind us that paradise, which he equates with unspeakable beauty, is part of our future hope, right? Like, we at least have that, that what Paul saw is, you know, he says we don't live by faith or by sight, but by faith, right, earlier in the letter, but he's seen things that we, that we normally can't see, and in this case, paradise for Christians unspeakable beauty is part of what we can expect in the future. That's really good news, right? Even though that's not, a part, that's not why he's bringing this up, uh, it is definitely a secondary thing that we get, that paradise is coming. Kind of like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Same word, today you'll be with me in paradise when you believe it, if you trust in me, and, and that, that criminal, that thief did, and he was saved there, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in the third heaven. So it also kind of made me think then too about how the story of the Bible is the story essentially of the marriage between heaven and earth, which is kind of hinted at when heavenly texts and earthly texts like this are linked or juxtaposed in places like this in the book of 2 Corinthians. But the one who ultimately enables this reconciliation marriage, of course, is Jesus himself who was God and man which is to say he was essentially heaven and earth in flesh. And he was pinned to a cross, suspended between heaven and earth, and so sinners like us might be bridged to God, we, so we, we might be saved. So the prince of the power of the air, uh, you could say the quote from Ephesians 2 that Ellen just read a few minutes ago, might be slayed when Christ was hung literally in the air uh, between heaven and, and earth. So, Let's go back, though, with that said, let's go back to the, um, I guess what I'll call the earthly side of the passage and ask this question, why is Paul bringing this up? Because this is actually why he's doing it. There's a reason for it contextually. If you've been here for this series, you, it, he's not changing topics, like he's continuing to drive home his point. And the answer, then, is to go back a couple of weeks ago to use some of his language. It's to show that he is by no means inferior to these infiltrating false teachers, to these super apostles, and to continue to brag, or to sound like he's bragging, he's not, but to sound like he's boasting and to sound like a fool, his words, to show that he is kind of on their level. These people who are claiming superiority to Paul and claiming superiority to, um, to Paul's gospel as well. So the Corinthians then are kind of liking the boasters. They're liking these false teachers who are flexing their muscles and bragging in their works and kind of teaching the Corinthians to do the same. And so Paul's kind of like sarcastically joining in, albeit briefly, to show that he's a legitimate apostle of Christ, even though he's weak, even though his gospel seems more elementary than these false teachers' gospel, um, that they um, should not dismiss Paul outright, that he is the true apostle and the others are not. We also know from not just this week, but from other weeks, that Paul is not boasting for boasting's sake, but to show that although he has more reason to boast, if we were saved by works or by charismatic experiences, though we're not, but if we were, then he would have more reason to boast because he's experienced more. And as he said last week, he's labored more. He's done more in ministry and for the faith than these super apostles were. But then the key is, he's not boasting in them though. So he's laying them out there saying, these are my experiences and my labors, but I have not centralized those things as though they were the centerpiece to Christianity. In fact, this whole whole third heaven thing in, in 2 Corinthians 12 at all is essentially Paul saying, similar to what he said last week, I have ascended Higher than the super apostles. Like the experience I had in the third heaven, the super apostles didn't have that experience, but I did. But then he comes around and says, isn't it significant that I've never talked about this experience to you before? Like when I brought the gospel to you, I didn't talk about this. Doesn't that mean anything? Especially to you, Corinthians? In other words, it's not just about Paul's humility here, but it's about these It's because these high things, these mystical religious experiences are not the center of Christianity. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I didn't want to bring this up. I didn't want to boast about this. I don't want to highlight this part of my life. But since you guys are forcing me to do this, I will temporarily to say, I've done and experienced better, more religious, more spiritual, more works-centered things than they have, but I'm not centralizing them. You know, does, that should mean something, right? The one thing, if that was flipped, but Paul said, I've been to the top of the mountain. There's no life up there. And so Paul's essentially then saying, like through this third, third heaven vision, that, um, again, it's not just about humility, but it's about what the centerpiece is. And that's the confusing thing that's getting muddled by the false teaching. Jesus is the center, not mystical religious experiences, not uh, our good works, but, but Christ himself. I'm not, Paul saying, I'm not better for having the visions, you're not less. I'm not better for my works, you're not less for your lesser works. Jesus is really all, all that matters. Verse 6, if you have it open in front of you, look at verse 6 again. I don't have it on screen, but Paul there essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he says, I refrain from talking about this third heaven stuff, so you would not think more of me. Like, he doesn't want to be thought more of. He doesn't want to become an obstacle, his experiences and his works between other Christians and God. And so he doesn't bring it up so as to not make it this thing that the Corinthians or others would think, oh, I need to experience that. I need to go through that. I need to climb that mountain. I need to accomplish uh, such and such. But this is why Paul never brings this, this stuff up. In fact, if you kind of flipped it around and said uh, if these were the words of Christ himself sort of saying this is why i led my apostle to these heights and then brought him back down to earth it would essentially be jesus saying i had my apostle ascend into heaven then descend back into earth back down to earth in order to preach a gospel that never talks about the high things or his ascent into heaven but only about my grace in order to show you that it's not by your works, but by my works, that you are saved. On a related note, I think that it's interesting that Paul mentions the phrase in verse 4. He said about the third heaven, he saw things or he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And I think that's interesting in kind of furthering his point in a, maybe kind of a, backdoor way, uh, because in Christ we know that we can utter gospel things, we can understand gospel things, we believe that the things of God from himself are told and understood. In other words, Christianity is not ascending to the third heaven, but rather God coming down from the third heaven to us, to take on flesh, to become like us, in order to speak a heavenly language of grace in our language. That, that's basically a way to use 2 Corinthians language to talk about the gospel. Even though Paul had this ascension, that's not the gospel. The gospel's not becoming a better version of yourself. It's not climbing a ladder. It's Christ coming down the ladder. It's the third heaven coming here and personified in human flesh as the Son of God dying on a cross for our sins, Right? So then I think one lesson that we can glean from this is, you know, if our, the way we, you know, kind of position Christianity or summarize Christianity or live out Christianity, if it's too veiled behind too much of a language barrier or too many hard-to-understand doctrines or too heavenly of ideas and too many impossible-to-keep laws, then it's possible we're succumbing to the same temptation the Corinthians were in adding to Jesus. And that doesn't mean that Christianity, like true Christianity, has no mysteries or anything hard, or you know, that it doesn't have anything hard to understand or any bearing on our lives. It doesn't mean that. It just means that at the core, Christ has solved mysteries. Christ has made things clear. He has revealed God to us in a way that children can understand. He has not laid a heavy burden on us. His words, right? From Matthew 11. But instead, he has died for us to help us walk upright. And so again, I, I don't think that Paul is making this like explicitly clear, but implicit it, it, implicitly it helps to kind of um, you know, push forward his argument that though I experienced the third heaven, I, didn't, I can't even put into words what I saw. But in Christ, in the gospel... It's all put into words. Like, in Christ, we can understand God. In Christ, we can understand what it means to be saved, right? In Christ, God talks our language, you know? It's one of the big points of Pentecost in Acts 2, if you know that story. Uh, But That's a side note. So I think that it's interesting that Paul says, you know, not just that I'm not centralizing these high things, but he's also saying that even when I was there, um, I had a lesser experience than I did down on earth when I believed that Jesus died for my sins. That was a lesser experience. Even though it's amazing, unspeakable beauty, he's saying what was better is when I heard God speak in my, in my language. You guys heard God speak in your language. When he became human, like us in every way, to bear all of our burdens and to die on a cross clearly and to rise from the tomb clearly, so we could understand all these things, these mysteries that were kept secret for long ages, like it says at the end of Romans, I think. Kept secret in the Old Testament for long, for, for long ages and ages, but now revealed and through the prophetic writings made known that uh, Jesus is here to save us from our sins. All right, so the next section then, and this is where all of this moves to, is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Let me read verse 7 again, where he says, So, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. All right, so for this next section, I have a what, a wait, and two whys. All right, so the, the first is the what. What is it? What's the thorn? We don't really know um, it's clearly suffering of, on some level, right? It, uh, it's a physical ailment of some kind or maybe um, getting a little bit more specific. Uh, it could be just persecution. Uh, when he mentions a messenger of Satan, we know that Satan's MO in part is to harm Christians, to war against them. And so um, this could imply that the thorn was simply persecution for his faith. We know this is a huge part of Paul's life, right? Uh, even in this letter, Uh, Lots and lots of persecution, simply being hated for simply just being a Christian, um, being misunderstood by other Christians, even inside the church too, but warred against by other uh, non-Christians. You actually see too at the end of the um, section, verse 10, he says, for the sake of Christ then, after saying all this, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, So it's kind of like he comes, comes around the argument, right, to say that I'm content in Christ. I, I was, you know, given this thorn to ground me in Christ alone and in his grace. And so um, I think that if you bring in verse 10 to kind of define what the thorn is, we see that it's insults. It's just hardships. It's suffering persecution. So that might go without saying, but uh, it is kind of a big question that we understandably usually bring to this passage, and we don't totally know, but we have a rough idea. The weight would be, uh, wait, doesn't this imply that God is the one who sent the messenger of Satan? And it, and it does. The answer to that is yes. Uh, it does not just imply, it, it, that's what it means. But it also implies that God uses evil for good here, right? It, it implies that the devil is you know, infinitely subservient to God. He's not a dark side co-equal with God, but infinitely subservient to Him. And that's really good news, especially when we come to understand the cross of Christ, which, remember, was, at least in part, a devil-instigated evil through Judas, but how God used that, He used the worst of things there for our good and our life and our resurrection and our closeness to God, our reconciliation with our Creator. And, and so forth. The why, though, is the big thing. The why would be, why did Paul receive it? And um, he actually gets quite clear in verse 7. He says, the reason this happened, the reason I suffered, the reason God didn't answer my prayers for it to be taken away, was to keep me from becoming full of myself. To keep me from becoming conceited about the visions that God graciously gave me. So he's saying, so I wouldn't get inflated, that I wouldn't become prideful about these experiences that were very, very rare for Christians in that day and for all time uh, to, to get. So the broad idea here, of course, and this came up earlier in the series, I, I think as well, early on, is that God will say, God just will say, um, yes, a lot of times do our prayers for comfort, but a lot of times he'll say no, um, because or, if I should say, if the comfort, if too much comfort, would lead us to rely on ourselves. Because relying on ourselves is the epitome of the false apostles' teaching. It's the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christ, right? And our response is to believe, is to rely on his works for us. I was talking yesterday to someone at Hiawatha about the idea of inheritance. From Ephesians 1, who if, if that idea is one of the you know, more common metaphors and realities behind salvation. But the idea of inheritance, right, is that someone else works for what you get, right? Someone might spend their life working 40, 50 years. They gather money and they leave it to their kids or to a relative. That's, that idea is what the Bible says is like salvation for you and me. We get an inheritance. God does all the work every single burden-lifting work by dying on a cross for our sins, and then we glean the wealth of that. We glean the comfort of that. We glean the hope, the security, the, the security of an eternal future we get because of what he did. So it's the same kind of idea uh, here as, uh, as well. If, if our eyes are being taken off that idea in any way, then, um, at least for Paul, but I think this, this widens out here, um, our answer, or God's answers to our prayers will be no sometimes. Because, well, think about it this way. God always answers, but he loves us too much to give us all we ask for. Right? Uh, he always answers, but his answers aren't always, are, they're always going to be in our best interest, uh, because he, but he always has the perfect long game in mind, and we never have the perfect long game in mind. So, um, the nose will be, you know, um, will, be, will be for the best. So I know a lot of you guys know that before. This is kind of a common thing. It's maybe even logical. But, um, but this, is, this is a big picture truth that we need to glean from this passage. A lot of us are praying for things, healings, comfort, deliverance from COVID and pandemic life. And um, our view of God and how he answers prayer needs to be informed by the Bible, not what we think should, he should be like, right? Not how you think he should answer, but it needs to submit to what we believe God God wants for the world and for our lives, which from a good God is always going to have a good ending. If we're his children, it's always going to be a good ending, but um, the storms will come, the thorns will come to ensure that we stay on the path of, of salvation. All right, here's the key phrase, though. My grace is sufficient for you. Uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, uh, which, is, which highlights the words of Christ and puts them in red, they're in red here, which is kind of interesting, right? You don't see a lot of red letters in the epistle genre, the letter genre of the New Testament, but here, they, if you have a red-letter version, they kind of jump off, jump off the page. I was freshly realizing that uh, and appreciating that this, uh, this week in my own, my own Bible. But Jesus' words, this is, Paul writes down, this is what Jesus said when I prayed three times, Take away this suffering, this thorn from my side. Take it away. Uh, Jesus' answer was, in love, no. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness, and I know know what's best for you. And so this passage, uh, a lot of you guys probably read this before, um, and even if you haven't, I'm guessing this was maybe uh, what you took from it, but I think this passage, this exchange, just begs for us To put ourselves in the place of Paul, doesn't it? As if Jesus is saying the same thing to us, like every day, especially when we pray, don't always get what we pray for, or just broadly when we suffer. Jesus is saying the same thing to us. And then to ask, to look at that question, or at this statement rather, my grace is sufficient for you, and then to ask, do I really believe that? Is that where you are? Speaking of those of you who are Christians. I mean, if you're not, then you're still gleaning a lot here about what Christianity is and isn't. But for those of you who are Christians, like Paul is here, do you really believe that? Like, is it sufficient for you or not? Or is it maybe 90% sufficient, but man, if you had this other 10%, then, then yeah, you'd really be in a good spot. I mean, spiritually speaking, be in a much better spot with God. Or with when it comes to salvation and, and, and so forth. This is a beautiful, deep theological and meaningful, but almost impossible to fully believe statement, right? If you think about it. Most of you in the room would probably say, yes, it is. But I mean, like in the day-to-day though, do we really believe that it is? Do we act like it is? Do we think like it is? When we sin, do we believe it is? When we don't sin, do we believe it is? When we get everything we want, do we believe it is? When we have nothing, we don't get anything we want, do we believe it is? Right, could be on both sides. I think the reality here for Paul, well, for all of us, is grace is power. It's not just exoneration from sin, but it's power to reshape your mind. Uh, it, it saves us, in other words, from looking up, from saying, if I just had this, if I could just do that, if I was more like that person. And it also saves us from looking down, because conceit has to do with superiority, right? It saves us from saying I have ascended. I've been a good person. I've done more than this other Christian. I've shared my faith more. I've given more to missions. I've pursued spiritual disciplines more, etc., etc., etc. This statement idea, an idea if you believe it, destroys all those ways of thinking, right? It doesn't even in the slightest allow for those ways of thinking because we can't compare ourselves, right? The, the grace of God becomes sufficient and all-encompassing, and we don't not only need anything more, but we can't take any pride in what we've accomplished. Instead, again, Jesus' grace, meaning his love, meaning his death and resurrection, the, the undeserved merit and favor we have with God that was purchased for us and accomplished on the cross, all of that is sufficient. It's all we need. We don't need to add to it. And I, I, think, I think here for Paul, too, uh, that we see this in verse 7, that the messenger of Satan maybe also, not just with physical attack, but even for Paul, it may have had to do with, and probably did, right, with theological temptation. Like Paul saying, I would have been too prideful. I would have been tempted to think that the visions were necessary to have on top of what Jesus did for me if I didn't have the thorn. That's the whole like flow of logic there, right? So even Paul's saying, I'm telling you guys this, but I'm not better than you. I'd be in the same spot without the thorn. I too would be starting to dance with the idea that my works and accomplishments are what keep me saved. Paying God back with good deeds is what keeps me in the boat keeps me in, keeps me on the straight and narrow. I'd be there too, but I received a thorn to remind me that that's that's not true. Or to think about it from Jesus' perspective, you know, it's like Jesus is saying to Paul, oh, now you think that you also need revelations? You also need visions of the third heaven? Or worse, you think that you earned that little peek into heaven? Here's a thorn. I love you. That's like, that's like Jesus' response, you know, through all of this. And so another why, then, uh, that my second why related to all of that is why does he use the word thorn? Why do you guys think that, that that comes up here? Because Paul has used all kinds of words for suffering, and just the word suffering, right? Even in this passage, he uses the word trials. So why doesn't he say that God gave me a trial? That would be true. Or... A, a form of suffering. Thorn is much more me- metaphorical, right? It's much more symbolic. It wasn't an actual thorn. So what does that mean? And um, if you're new to the Bible, what, one of the best things to ask when you come across things like this is, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about that term or idea uh, or, um, or theology that maybe clarifies what's, what's happening here? And so in this case, we would ask, where else does thorns come up in the Bible? And it's Paul kind of hearkening us back to that in a way to help explain his experience here. And I I think that's in part what he's doing. When we do that, though, thorns come up uh, very early in the Bible. Some of you know this. In Genesis 3, uh, after sin comes into the world. And so it's possible that, you know, thorns, when we view our sufferings as quote-unquote thorns in our life, it's possible that thorns would remind us of the fall when you know, after humanity rebelled against God, that God said the ground would be cursed and produce thorns because of Adam's sin, right? So the ground was cursed and it would send up not just plants, but things that couldn't be touched and would harm people when they tried to farm and play and walk and so forth. So it's possible that when God said that, that our thorns would kind of themselves, you know, uh, point us back. It might remind us how we, as sinners, share in Adam's sin and his self-worship and how Adam and Eve went their own way and and fell away from God and how, therefore, we need someone to come who would reverse the curse by bringing life from the ground, right? Because if the curse came from the ground, it follows that we would need a curse reversal that, too, would come from the ground, which, of course is what Jesus did when he rose from the ground, from the dead, on Easter morning. So so thorns then can orient us graciously towards uh, the resurrection, if and only if they are understood as thorns. If we didn't have thorns here, we'd never be able to kind of take this flow of theological thought. So thorns orient us graciously toward the resurrection, but before that, they orient us here. Towards the crucifixion, when Jesus wore thorns on his head when he was being crucified, and this is important because it signifies Jesus was not just a in a vague, undefined sense a curse ender, but he ended the curse by bearing it. You see the difference and how specific that is. This is true for other ways of kind of understanding, you know, metaphorically, symbolically, thematically, uh, what the problem is in the Bible and then how Jesus bore the problem. So this just happens to be one way to understand it. Thorns dictate what the problem is in the world through sin. It's not a coincidence or a small thing that Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his head. It should send you right back to Genesis 3, but also with a pit stop here in 2 Corinthians ten or 12 to show us that our smaller thorns can remind us of his greater thorn and the sufficiency of his kingliness here. He's wearing a crown. This is our king, dying for you and me, uh, bearing the problem of the cursed ground for you and me, bearing the problem of our separation from God for, uh, from you and me. In fact, in a lot of ways, if you think about Paul's life, just in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's life experience was very reminiscent of Jesus's. In that, he was in the third heaven, he descended from the third heaven back down to earth in order to bear thorns, right? By way of loving his church, loving his people. That should scream Christ symbolically to us. And this has been important in this letter too. Some of you are maybe brand new today, uh, but if you're not, hopefully you're seeing this just gong being rung over and over again now Paul is saying it's not just my preaching it's my very life experiences that scream the sufficiency of grace to you it's not just the content of my preaching it's the fact that I was in the third heaven like Jesus and I descended like Jesus and I bore thorns like Jesus and I love the church like Jesus that is enough That's all you need. What else could you ever want? And how dare we think that we could add to that by being a good person as if that's necessary, as if that's what's going to turn God's head. How could you add to that type of scandalous love? Isn't that awesome how Paul is, he's giving the full 360 but from two sides, like it's a double-sided thing where he's not just preaching in love to them, it's not just the content of his letters, not just the pen to paper, but it's his whole story that starts to show over and against the super apostle's false message that it's the simple descending of God to earth to become like us, the diner place that, that, that we need. That's it. That's grace. And to know that, to ruminate on that, is the mark of a true believer. It's Communion in a word it 's daily Christian living in a phrase, and so I want to bring us back then to the question. This is actually my question if you if you remember in the passage, does Jesus ask the question to paul it 's not in the form of a question, is it? He just states it, but the question's a good it 's a good angle on it. so let me start with this is The grace of God through Jesus Christ for you Christians, is that sufficient for you today? I'm not talking about yesterday or this morning, but I mean right now in this very room. Not tomorrow or next week. This is daily bread type question in gospel teaching for for me too, for all of us. Is right now the grace of God enough? Is it sufficient? And not to be deflating here or anything, but all of your answer to that, to that question and mine, all of our answer is at least in part no. Like, it just isn't, you know? Like, it is in the sense that if you're a Christian, you believe that, right? But in the day-to-day, in the practical, um, it's just, it's a slippery thing. It's hard to hold on to it. Um, I was talking to Aletha, my wife, about that a little bit last week or two weeks ago, but just how hard it is, you know, just to believe that Christ is enough sometimes and, um when you look at your life, like after you sin, you know, after you don't, like I said before, after you get get what you want, after you don't, you know, do you compare yourselves to Christians? Um, the list goes on, but a sub question to this would be, what else do you think you need to do? And if you have any answer to that question that's not nothing, it's too much. Another sub question would be. What else do you think needs to be done for you? And if you have any answer to that question other than nothing, it's too much. And so Jesus then says not, is my grace sufficient for you, to people who have a hard time with this idea, right? But he has has a much more gracious thing to say. Remember what he said? He just says it. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. It just is. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you even when you don't believe it is. See, it's not a test. Jesus is saying, my grace is what I've done is. Even if you can't fully comprehend it or don't always apply it to the heart, it is today. This is what he's saying to Hiawatha Church today, to all of us is, my grace, my death and resurrection is sufficient. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? But this, I think, is what Jesus says uh, in a more all-encompassing way. He says, Christian, my grace is sufficient for you, even when you don't believe it. You don't need the high visions. You don't need to bear the burdens. You don't need to observe the law. You don't need to be strong. You only need my saving grace. Let your thorns point to my thorns, my greater thorns, that I bore in your place. Let the third heaven come to you. Stop trying to ascend, but instead receive me and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, Thank you that it is a uh, stark reminder that there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves and nothing we can do to stay saved except believing in the gospel every day and nourishing ourselves on it like bread and wine. Help us to do that now in commemoration of your death, to proclaim your death. First Corinthians 11 says, proclaim your death until you come. And we pray it would be soon. In the meantime, uh, God, keep us saved. Keep us on the straight and narrow. Keep us in the fence lines of truth and protect us from hopping over them. In Christ we pray, amen.